Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. On today's episode, we're revisiting an issue that we've talked about on past episodes, but that we couldn't possibly talk about too much or even enough. I'm referring to Ohio's shameful infant and maternal health outcomes, which are not only bad in the aggregate, but are compounded by gaping disparities, especially as concerns Ohio's black and brown babies, who are far more likely than white babies to die before their first birthday. In the background of all this, of course, are two issues that are front and center in the news and stand to compound our already poor maternal and infant health outcomes, such as the imminent gutting of reproductive choice in the U.S. and the lingering crisis in baby formula. And yet, as you'll hear, today we're not just talking about the well-known data points or the challenges. We're moving past that today to talk about a promising pilot project that has demonstrated the benefits of addressing housing instability for expecting new mothers, with clear benefits for the health and economic stability of low-income families. Healthy Beginnings at Home is a housing stabilization pilot program for pregnant women. Led by the Infant Mortality Prevention Collaborative Celebrate One, but supported as well by an impressive and expansive group of organizations across Central Ohio, Healthy Beginnings at Home was designed to improve maternal and infant health outcomes for low-income families. And while we get into the findings of the pilot phase of this project and talk about how it might be scaled in such a way to start to help more and more families, we also know that there are large and challenging problems in housing that require more systemic policy solutions. So we get into some of those as well. Today's episode's a bit longer than usual because we have two guests whom I talk with in two parts. First, I'll be talking with Maureen Stapleton, director of Celebrate One. And second, I talk with Barbara Poppy of Barbara Poppy and Associates, who served as a consultant on the Healthy Beginnings Project. I encourage you to make sure you listen to both as they bring different expertise to the question. Before turning to the interviews, though, just a reminder to please rate this episode in your podcast app. And if you want to help us make the show sustainable, we'd really appreciate your becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month, which you can do by following the links at prognosisohio.com. And while we'd love for you to become a Patreon, it's also just really helpful to us if listeners could share episodes with friends, colleagues, and family on social media and elsewhere. Okay, now for part one of our episode with Maureen Stapleton, director of Celebrate One. Be sure to check out our show notes at prognosisohio.com, where you can read more about director Stapleton's work and her background. Director Maureen Stapleton of Celebrate One, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're focusing on this episode on the Healthy Beginnings at Home project and the, and the report going to be providing that report to listeners so they can read through it and all sorts of supplemental information in our show notes. Um, and we're also going to be talking later in the episode with Barbara Poppy as well. And we're going to really dig into some of the details of the report there. Before turning to Healthy Beginnings at Home, though, I wanted to give you an opportunity. You know, some of our listeners may not know about Celebrate One, may not know, may have heard of it and not all, know all the details. So I want to kind of start there and, and see if you can uh, give us give us the background on on what Celebrate One is and um, what you've been up to uh, lately with it. Thank you very much. Uh, Celebrate One was developed in 2014, and it, it was born out of a community effort of community leaders to address infant mortality. And from that uh, group of folks came a report called the Greater Infant Mortality Task Force Report. And that task force report had eight recommendations that this community needed to follow in order to address two major issues, prematurity, um, and which is a leading cause and indicator of infant mortality, 
and sleep-related deaths. The goal of the initial report was to reduce infant mortality by 40% and lessen the disparities between non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic White babies by 50%. Fast forward through 2020, our first five years of existence, and the City of Columbus and Franklin County have done very well through 2020 in addressing infant mortality. Depending on which segment of the community we you're looking at, we have... Uh, done a great job, like 28, 29% in some cases of lowering infant mortality. What we haven't done a very good job of is lessening the disparities between non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic White babies. And by the way, those are CDC terms, and that is how those are categorized. And so in 2021, we began the what we call Celebrate One 2.0 to come up with new recommendations, build upon what we've done well, expand even further into um, ways that we can affect prematurity, smoke-related deaths, and other things that are the uh, impacting um, birth outcomes like the social determinants of health, housing, food, workforce development, and that kind of thing. In 2018, and to address the social determinants of health, Celebrate One, along with a group of partners, started Healthy Beginnings at Home. And um, we know now uh, that what we knew before, but we have a little bit of science behind it, that having adequate housing during your pregnancy and post your pregnancy come gets better birth outcomes for moms. Yeah. So was the housing discussion um, part of the initial conceptualization of uh, Celebrate One? It seems to me, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, safe sleeping, for example, is is bound up in in housing to a certain degree, right? These things. But was that the conversation, or did you kind of come to realize, oh, housing has got to be where we go as you started to get into the program? So, recommendation number three. Again, the original plan had eight recommendations, but recommendation three dealt with the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Working to with our lead entities, and there were about 11 lead entities at the time. Celebrate One is the backbone of the process, but we work with others and collaborate with others in order to get that done, uh, the work done. And so um, uh, recommendation three spoke to the social determinants of health. That's housing, workforce development, transportation, food security. And so, yes, housing and the other social determinants of health have been a goal to work on um, from Celebrate One's perspective from the start. So let's kind of dig into that a little bit, though. So, you know, on this show, we talk about housing a lot and and we've talked about health and the social determinants are well known to many of our listeners. You know, we're we're enlightened health people, I, I like to think anyway. Uh, and I certainly know that the listeners are. But when you, you know, it strikes me that health and housing get treated a little bit differently in policy discussions. I mean, health to a certain degree seems to be more and more people are accepting that it is something of an entitlement or a kind of foundation. But housing is still seen as this thing that just doesn't get talked about in the same way. Do you think that, I mean, that is is housing in some ways a little bit of a bigger lift because we're just still a little bit new at, at having these conversations? Uh, or, or is it your sense that actually health and housing are already on the same plane and are recognized as such? I think it is a bigger lift, but I believe that as a society and a community, we're getting better at recognizing it. Let me give you an example. So we know now, which we should have known before, that if you do not have 
a refrigerator to put food in and electricity that is on in a decent environment. Food security, all I can do is, is give you food, but it, it won't last and it won't stay. Yeah. We know in order to have um, that house, you need to have the financial resources in order to maintain that house. Some folks can work and we can get them workforce development opportunities and, and training and development opportunities. But again, that money then has to go into putting a roof over your head. And so, because without an adequate roof and uh, a decent home, all the other social determinants will not, you, you'll have a hard time addressing. Yeah. If you don't have a decent place to sleep, you can't get to the job. If you don't have electricity in a home, you can't have the food that, that is needed for your family. And so um, there is uh, throughout the country a recognition now that housing needs to be the first thing that we stabilize for those most in need. I think that the governor and the mayor have done a very good job of trying to connect housing and health. That's one of the reasons that we're going to be able to expand what we learned in our Healthy Beginnings at Home 1 project with Healthy Beginnings at Home 2, a statewide initiative, because the governor and the mayor both understand that there is a connection between health and housing. And so this Healthy Beginnings at Home 2.0 that we are going to be doing with other cities across the, the state uh, came from the Ohio Department of Health. Yeah. Not Another department, because, again, the governor wants to make that hard line connection to between health and housing. So I think people are moving in the right direction. I think there's still an opportunity to educate our larger community on the so the importance of being housing being first. But we're moving in the right direction. It's interesting. You know, as a researcher uh, and, and, and somebody who teaches medical students, you know, I've also done some uh, research in communities. And this is something that, you know. I mean, I, I've come to realize and that you're saying the governor gets it and the mayor gets it. Um, you know, residents, when you've talked, when you talk to them, have gotten this for a long time. You know, we used to come in there and say, you know, we got to talk about your health care needs and your, your health care access. And, and they'd say, yeah, that's important. But that's like number four on my list. You know, I mean, you're right. Housing was always first. And I think that surprised some people. Maybe it's been a couple of years since that now. Now people get it. But it took a little time to convince people that starting with healthcare wasn't always what community members, what people wanted. Right. No, no there's no doubt. And, and and again, healthcare is impacted by it, right? If I'm out in the cold or I'm not living in a warm environment, then my healthcare is ultimately affected anyway. Yeah. Um, and if I'm not eating correctly, if I don't have the resources I need, then my health care is going to be affected anyway. Um, so housing first with all the others uh, following is what we are trying to do with Healthy Beginnings at Home. And we're really quite, quite frankly, continuing to have to prove so that our policymakers uh, can say that we had a statistically significant uh, enough population that we're working with uh, to put it finally to bed forever. And so while Healthy Beginnings at Home won uh, was 100 women in Columbus. Uh, Healthy Beginnings at Home 2 will be 300 women statewide. Yeah. So with that pilot for, uh, for Healthy Beginnings at Home, you went into it with a lot of hunches and there's a lot of theory. And you know, as we've talked about, the social determinants have been telling us this for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Was there anything surprising in 
the report or did the report kind of confirm in almost every way your hunches? I mean, this is why we do research sometimes is to be able to document and have evidence behind things that we that our theory is telling us. But as you think about it, what was your reaction to it? Was it just being glad that you had this to uh, to, to point to now? Or did you learn anything surprising or interesting to you? The, the, I think the thing that was most surprising to me is the differential in the cost per birth for those with, who were housed appropriately versus those who weren't. There's an exponential difference, like $4,000 worth of claims versus $21,000 worth of claims. There's a difference in NICU stays. That's the difference between the $4,000 and the $21,000 because NICU stays are very expensive, right? So I think that's that was a bit of a surprise to me, but not not much of the uh, other um aspects of the report were surprising because we we had our hunches and um and the study bore those uh those hunches out. We know this in healthcare, we know this from some of the studies that have been done on Medicaid for example that you know even though we might not be able to point to discernible health outcomes of some of the social determinants work. Sometimes that's a little bit hard to show. We do know that people save a lot of money and that that gives them disposable income to do things like pay the rent or keep their electric on. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, you know, with the safe safe sleeping initiatives that Celebrate One's been involved in, you got to get a crib from somewhere. A crib is an, it's a commodity. I mean, hopefully people can get them for free somewhere if they really need one. But, you know, these things don't come out of, out of nowhere. They don't come out of nowhere. And the thing about Celebrate One that I think is so special is that we meet moms where they are. We meet families where they are. We meet dads where they are. And if it is, if the barrier to protecting that child is a safe sleep environment, we will get them a pack and play, a crib, or whatever else they need. If that barrier to keep that child alive and healthy to the age of one is a car seat, then we will put that parent through training to know for sure how to appropriately use the car seat, and we will make sure that they have one. Um, If indeed a mom needs housing, we're going to work with our housing partners and and professionals to ensure that that if that's the barrier to better birth outcomes and that baby living to one, regardless of their zip code, their in their 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 race or the you know, the neighborhood they lived in, in, then that's what we're going to do. So Celebrate One is special in that regard. And we work, again, with a variety of organizations that we call lead entities. That's Moms-to-Be, which is group prenatal care um, um, out of OSU, to Step One, the, the, the centralized intake for any mom who's looking to get to a doctor and looking for additional support. Uh, we work with people and find people where they are and then help them bridge the gaps. There is a way of making sure that somebody can keep their lights on and stay in, in secure housing. And then there are the larger structural issues around housing. I mean, we know in central Ohio that we are in a really difficult moment. We've had um, you know, foreclosures and evictions. There's been a whole conversation through the pandemic about just how insecure housing has been. Uh, do you see this ultimately opening the door to have larger conversations about 
housing specifically too, not just the impact on, on, on these mothers and on infant mortality, but can this be leveraged to have a little bit more of a robust conversation about just how important housing is? Uh, absolutely. And we leverage every day with our policy partners, everyone from the mayor's office to the Department of Development here at the city to the Department of Development at the state. Uh, with 54,000 units short of affordable housing, um, there is a conversation that has to be had and we are having. So yes, it is allowing us to open the door to the larger housing, affordable housing conversation. So um, Celebrate One is a part of an ecosystem of Franklin County. Franklin County and Columbus are growing exponentially. We have um, gone from the 21st or 24th city to the 14th city. And we realize that by the next census, we'll probably be higher than that and over a million folks. With people coming in, many of them will be young families, right? And we already have a 54,000 unit shortage for affordable housing. We are part of that conversation now that says, in addition to all the overall arching issues with affordable housing, we also need to consider those most vulnerable and those who are pregnant and or parenting a child under the age of one. So it is helping us leverage those conversations. As I mentioned, we will be linking in the show notes to this. You have a pretty impressive list of collaborators, right, around town, known entities. These, you know, uh, the Physicians Care Connection, one of my favorite organizations on that list. We've had them on this show before, not to just pull them out, but I have special love for them, so I will. Uh, but how, how have you found the housing, let's call it the housing industry, landlords, like people, you know, the different entities that are involved in that world? Are they excited about this work? Are these hard conversations to have sometimes? Are you finding that you're able to build some bridges to talk about? the connection between infant mortality and housing, which may not seem obvious to a lot of these folks at first until they've talked with you. Um, So uh, thanks to the mayor and the development community uh, here in Columbus, they have helped us fund a variety of our initiatives. So we do have great relationships with developers. Now we're having conversations with developers, not just about helping us fund some of our efforts, but opening up Units for our families most in need, especially those who are are in the business of affordable housing. And what we are are saying to our development and landlord community is um, some. Yes, the folks who we work with, many of them come with challenges. Right. They come with past eviction, past other issues, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, outstanding balances with. Uh, utility companies. So some of our folks come with those issues. Not everybody, but some of them do. But if you work with us versus just working with a family directly, we have an ecosystem. There's a housing stabilization specialist that walks through and works through issues for that family. There's a Celebrate One uh, navigator or community health worker who's there to address um, connections to services that the moms need. There's um, uh, the Columbus Public Health Department a home visiting program that is there to provide uh, visiting uh, for health and wellness along with just 
putting the roof over the head. And so what we are saying to developers is while this may be a more challenging population, if you work with us, we can bridge the gap for those families. We can give the developer, the landlord and the family the extra support for that family to be successful as a renter in their various developments or properties. The work that Celebrate One does is is critical work in the community. It's one of the feathers in the cap of Columbus. It, it, we have huge challenges in this in this state and in this city, in this area, but we also have people who are putting in the time and the work and building the bridges like you are. So, Director Maureen Stapleton, I want to sh- uh, thank you for being on the show and taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, with that foundation in place, let's turn now to part two of our episode. Barbara Poppy served as a consultant on the Healthy Beginnings Project. She's a housing expert and a nationally recognized leader in achieving data-driven solutions to homelessness. Among other things, Poppy served as the executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness in the Obama administration. You can read her full profile in the show notes to this episode at prognosisohio.com. So as we learned in our discussion with Celebrate One director Maureen Stapleton, the first phase of Healthy Beginnings at Home tested the impact of providing rental assistance to a small sample of unstably housed pregnant women at risk of infant mortality. Uh, You've had a distinguished career as a leader addressing homelessness nationwide, including important work in the Obama administration. I'd like to just start by having you explain your role in this project and telling us as a housing expert about the logic, the kind of approach you took with Healthy Beginnings at Home. Healthy Beginnings at Home uh, grew out of a passion I had related to improving policies that support families with children, uh, including pregnant women, and looking for ways to ensure that we could have families live healthier lives across the country um, and for children to grow up um, to be healthy and achieve their full potential. And what I learned as I came back from working in Washington, D.C. and was working here in Columbus is that we had this terrible crisis of infant mortality and that infant mortality crisis had um, extreme racial disparities in that black babies were two to three times more likely to die than their white counterparts. Um, And as I learned about this local crisis, uh, I learned that Uh, many of the factors that contribute to these adverse birth outcomes are are called the social determinants of health. And most prominent among the social determinants of health was the uh, lack of access to to housing. And that perked me up. I was like, oh, so housing instability leads to babies dying. And I just thought that was was terrible. And I thought there must be something we can do. Let's try to kind of understand what is happening and how we might we might intervene because surely this is something we as a country could agree on is that we want babies to be born healthy and to uh, to grow up um, to be continue to be healthy so that was what really led to it the research that i was tracking was done by dr megan sandal out of boston and she was talking about as a pediatrician she wanted housing as a prescription that she could offer. And as I talked with her and learned about her research, um, really learned that uh, homeless women 
we're at high risk for these bad consequences, but also housing unstable women. And by that, mean women who were living in doubled up, overcrowded situations, fleeing domestic violence, have a lot of um, just trying to get through the day uh, crises related to, to extremely low incomes and lack of access to housing. So that's how it came together, this idea. My role was to start talking with leaders in this community about whether they wanted to do anything about it, talking with leaders across the state of Ohio are you aware of this? Are there things that we can do about it? And there got to be a group that came together and said, yes, we should We should see if there's a way that in Ohio, we could address this. And out of that was born Healthy Beginnings at Home. You know, so much is contentious in this state and around the country, but it does seem, and we've talked about it on the show, there does seem to be bipartisan consensus around infant mortality, thank God, right? I mean, there, there, there seems to be this, like, okay, we can argue about lots of things, but this is a, a huge, huge, not just crisis in the state, but also a mark of shame nationally when you look at where we rank. Absolutely. And it was just, um, when I looked at the housing policies, I also could see there was no prioritization or even a special discussion about the importance of having pregnant women be stably housed. In our community here in Columbus, pregnant women have been on the streets living in cars and under bridges. They've also been you know, stuck in um, shelter facilities with not a lot of pathways out of that. Um, and then in these terrible housing conditions. So it's a problem that we can see if we just open our eyes to it here in Columbus. Uh, I think with Maureen's leadership of Celebrate One and the Community Shelter Board and Michelle Heritage, they came together and they said, look, this is a problem in our community and we need to come together to do that. They were only... um, we were, have only been able to do this, though, because we also had state leadership that came together. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency said, you know, we've got we've got some funds that we can put toward this. And they partnered with uh, Columbus and we we were able to, to launch it. But um, you're right. It's a I mean, the thing is, is that's a preventable crisis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we. um and we've got the tools to do this. What we wanted to build is the evidence with Healthy Beginnings at Home that by providing housing early in the pregnancy, you can deliver babies that are full term and full weight, healthy weight. So that had not been done anywhere in the country to make that uh, proof point that an investment in housing early in the pregnancy can lead to the positive outcomes that we're looking for. I want to get into the findings a little bit with you, and maybe we could kind of briefly touch on them. There's five major findings from from this stage of of, of the, the 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 project. So first, Healthy Beginnings at Home contributed. Um, this is what you found to large reductions in Medicaid spending, while impacts on health outcomes were more difficult to assess. Director Stapleton and I did talk about this a little bit. Briefly, it's hard to see discernible health outcomes from a project of this scope. And we've seen a lot of these kinds of, you know, this, this phenomenon in health research for many years. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, the Medicaid spending piece, I mean, was any of this surprising to you? Were these the outcomes you kind of, as, and this is the first finding that you have listed here. So I'm guessing it might be the headline in a way or one of the headlines. Was this surprising or just kind of like confirmation? I think we were... Um... We were not surprised by it. 
but what I think we were surprised by was the strength of the finding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I just got to say it was a hundred person study, so it doesn't have statistical power uh, to meet the, the evidentiary standard, but the trends were quite significant um, in terms of the trending, not statistically significant, but in the, in the differences were in the right direction. Uh, what, um, and, and I will say when I was talking with Dr. Sandel early on, as we thought about this, the expectation that I had was, is if we, I, I knew that if babies are not born full term and at healthy weights, they're likely to be hospitalized through a neonatal intensive care unit. And those are quite expensive. So that, that is what we were driving toward is if we can have babies be born at a healthy birth weight um, full term, we could avoid the NICU hospitalization and the costs associated with it. So I think that was what we were expecting and hoping would happen if, in fact, an intervention that happened during the first or second trimester made a difference. I think the strength of the Medicaid claims data also showed that there were differences for the entire family in their healthcare spending. And when we think about healthcare spending, there's both kind of positive healthcare spending, the preventative things like we want prenatal visits and we want um, you know, uh, you know, babies to be seen early on and to be vaccinated and those, those are positive health spending. The negative spending is long hospitalizations um, and more intensive care that is a result of it. So this, um, this direction for the entire family is really important and it speaks to home benefits the entire family. It doesn't yeah. just benefit the, the mother and the infant, it's going to benefit all members of the family. And aside from the health outcomes, you know, there are going to be people who are going to want to know just, you know, what, what does this save us in terms of overall expenditures? And it's hard to, when you take a family and you think about the, 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 the cost of health, it's it's hard it's hard to nail that down exactly because there may be ancillary benefits to this that we often don't track, you know, things that may come as secondary causes. Yeah. And we only looked at the health cost savings for the through the baby's first year of life. Mm -hmm. uh, what we are hoping to do with the next phase of the study is extend that study period to be through the baby's third year of life. Uh, as we've talked with uh, medical directors here in, in Ohio, they pointed out that the negative consequences of preterm birth uh, continue across multiple years. It's not just the first year of the baby's life. It actually is into the further years. Um, and the same, and that would also extend the time that we could study the family's health and see if having access to safe, stable, quality housing uh, does does promote better health and reduce healthcare spending. Yeah, this is the holy grail of longitudinal data, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to look at the lifespan and to actually think comprehensively about healthcare and, and health outcomes. Yeah, and I, I just want to say we're, uh, as we're working on the second phase of the study to partner with the Ohio Department of Medicaid and their research arm to be able to look at the health claims data across all of the managed care plans in Ohio is really quite significant um, and, and really exciting to be able to do that. So, so the second finding, and you know, no surprise here as I read it, that healthy beginning is at home improved housing stability. Um, helping people to pay to stay in, uh, you know, to remain housed is, is the kind of foundation of this. 
probably not surprising, but I want to kind of lump that with the the third finding, uh, which is that ongoing rental assistance and intensive housing stabilization ser- services that you say are critical for families at high risk of uh, for infant mortality in particular. And so we're kind of putting together these pieces here. Can you just tell me how? You know, and we did a little bit of this with Director Stapleton, but as from from the housing expert perspective, how do we think about the relationship between uh, housing and infant mortality? I mean, what 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 is the linkage there? Maybe some examples or anything you want to offer? Yeah. So the the population that we targeted for this intervention were women who were housing unstable, uh, and by being housing unstable. They uh, were in doubled up situations living with family or friends. They were at risk of eviction. Uh, They were actually literally homeless or fleeing domestic violence. And so what was needed for that intervention is we wanted to help these women get to um, their own apartment that was uh, met basic housing quality standards, that the rents were affordable. Uh, affordable rents are really important because if, when women are paying, when any family is paying more than they can afford, they have fewer dollars to pay for food or fewer dollars to um, meet other other basic needs. And being housing insecure is very toxic um, because of the stress it puts on families to do that. So we were looking for quality, we were looking for affordability, and then we also uh, were um, encouraging that the women try to locate in the neighborhoods that were the most convenient or they had the most connections in or that they wanted, you know, where they wanted their kids to go to school. Those kind of factors came into that. And so to do that, we needed obviously rental assistance to bring the affordability down and to ensure that we were able to get to the quality units that met the basic the basic standards, but then we also needed the staff to be able to advocate for the women to be able to rent these apartments. Um, we have a um, horribly segregated and racist housing system that has been in place for decades upon decades. There's obviously, I think we all know about redlining and residential segregation, but we facts that people may not know is if you're a black woman, you are much more likely to be evicted than um, a similarly situated household who is not headed by a black woman. So because we're targeting black women in particular for this um, research, because they are the most likely to have um, poor birth outcomes, we, we knew these women would have been infected in many ways by the the racist housing structures and policies that are in place. So having an advocate for them to help identify the landlord, to convince the landlord to rent to them, um, given that they had either no or poor credit, Um, many had um, evictions, um, in some cases, multiple evictions. And again, that's a population that um, because of our racist structures for criminal justice are also more likely to have had some interactions with the criminal justice system, even if it had not resulted in arrest or conviction, but some point of contact with them also can make it harder to access. So the services that we were providing were really um, the financial assistance, uh, dealing with any arrearages that they had, and then moving them into um, an apartment with a landlord that was willing to support them, and then providing all of the supports they needed, whether that was 
you know, furniture or household supplies, setting up their, their pantry, getting the kids situated in their schools, connecting with neighborhood resources. I think any of us who've, you know, every time you move, there's it's a big production. So yeah. thinking about being a pregnant woman, often who, who might have other children in her family, um, the kind of support that was needed to really get them to an apartment is pretty significant. Um, and so that's what we did to help them quickly access the housing market and find an apartment that was uh, met their met their standards. And I want to say one of the things about this project that's different than other projects is the pregnancy timeline continues to tick along. <laughs> and whether or not you're moving as fast as it's needed to get them to housing, their pregnancy continues to move along. So it's extremely urgent that we move women as quickly as possible into stable housing because we want to reduce the stresses of housing instability and food insecurity and all of the other negative consequences that we believe is what leads to the poor birth outcomes. Yeah. At first, when you look at the study, you know, I focused in on the subsidy issue because we've talked a lot about just the complete lack of affordable housing options in central Ohio. And this is not just unique to central Ohio, but it's particularly acute here. Um, but it's also the wraparound services. I mean, the, as you pointed to, the complexity of trying to locate affordable, safe housing. Uh, there, there's so much that goes into it that I, I think affluent, you know, well-off people with strong social networks and connections take for granted. I know I do. Uh, we've talked on the show about how discrimination is really supported by these kinds of networks within housing. Things like coming soon signs just irritate me because there are these ways in which communities keep housing stock locked down and kind of un, uh, unaffordable to others, but also things like source of income discrimination, uh, which here in Grandview, we haven't been able to pass yet. But I know around the state, there are municipalities that are trying to put this in place to make sure that when people do get subsidies for housing, they're able to actually use them when they go to rent. Yep. that I think that's a really good point because we were looking for property owners that were willing to enter into agreements with our rental assistance provider at the Columbus Metropolitan Housing Authority, uh, but also willing to work with our provider, which is um, Homes for Families. And and they're, they're, they're both well-respected organizations, but, um, you know, getting property owners to be willing to work with us rather than just someone um, who's able to pay their own way does does take um, a, a lot of effort. Um, Homes for Families was really amazing in this work is that despite the challenges and barriers that the women in the study were, were facing, we were able to house 100% of the women who were enrolled in the study. We only had one one individual which opted to move out of county. Um, so technically we did not rehouse her because she moved out of county, but the rest were all able to be rehoused. Uh, and uh, that would not have been possible if they had not been able to mobilize the staff and the supports and get willing property owners and property managers uh, to, to step forward and be willing to participate. Yeah. The challenge of housing stability that we were able to overcome was in part because we had the financial assistance and could make sure the rent stayed affordable. Uh, the uh, For most of the women in the study, they continued to be housing stable after the rental assistance period ended. Um, but there were still some women who were still struggling uh, because the wages are low in central Ohio or they had 
um, disabilities themselves or with their family members and really need the kind of long-term support you can get through the housing voucher programs that are HUD. And I think as we know, those programs are way oversubscribed. It's something like one in four, one in five families who are eligible for that assistance receive it. So unfortunately, the study can't mitigate the long-term issues of housing affordability in our community, except to the extent that some of the women in the study were able to get long-term assistance through, uh, through some of the other housing programs. So the fourth and fifth findings, and in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of move through them kind of quickly. I mean, the fourth finding regards the pandemic and obviously, you know, carrying out a study like this, a project like this during the pandemic. I've done this as a researcher. You have to write a whole bunch of paragraphs just kind of explaining whether, you know, whether and to what extent the pandemic changes the story here. I think it's not surprising that you found that this population was hit particularly hard by the pandemic. And of course, we've had a housing crisis discussion around the pandemic, evictions and all of this. But also the fifth finding regards racism, trauma and violence. And you've talked about that a little bit, how this population is particularly vulnerable to this. And this has to be taken into consideration when you're thinking about housing these folks and finding stable housing. I wonder if you could just speak briefly to, have we learned anything from this moment of heightened awareness around racial justice and also the pandemic piece? I think it's really clear that we can't have racial justice if we don't also have housing justice. Um, When you look at any of the racial disparities and who experiences homelessness, um, Black people are far more likely to experience homelessness than they are represented in the population. If we look at who is living housing insecure, disproportionately it is is Black households. So all of the numbers bear out the um, disparate impacts on it. I think that as we talk about moving toward um, greater racial justice and equity, uh, if we don't talk about homelessness and we don't or, and housing, uh, we simply ignore the plain facts. R- the reality is children cannot thrive if they don't have a safe, stable place to live. They're not going to excel in school. They're not going to... Um, you know, now obesity tracks to, you know, poor housing conditions um, and, and all kinds of things track to it. And I think that um, not just because I'm a housing advocate for all these years, but it's really clear that when you talk about the social determinants of health, uh, without housing as the foundation, the rest of it doesn't work. So yeah. people who aren't stably housed have a harder time working. They're not able to go to school. They're more likely to experience um, food insecurity. So housing really is uh, the central need. And that central need um, in many developed countries is actually a right to housing. And that is fundamental that, of course, everyone would have a safe, pl- stable place to live. The community and our country would be better served if everyone were fully housed. I look, I look around the streets of our city and in other cities, and and it is becoming quite the dystopian um, place to be because we are visibly seeing people um, living um, in just untenable circumstances, and unfortunately, that includes children and pregnant women uh, because we have not, as a country, said housing is a basic human right um, and have assured that that could be in place. The cost of 
um, addressing it as a country is relatively small compared to the benefits and the advances we would see. Um, and, and just to think about like no one, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, you don't want to leave the, um, freeway and have someone who is homeless panhandling and asking you for your dollars. Just imagine if they actually had stable housing, that would not be what the need is. So we've made these policy choices. And I think, um, my hope is that for the, for the future, we will begin to make better policy choices and assure housing as a human right. If I could just ask one final question, you know, uh, we talk about housing a lot on this show, actually, and, and and putting housing within the the mix and making it even central to when we think about health is a, is a core commitment that we have. In fact, our next episode is going to be with Glennon Sweeney from Ohio State University, who's a, a residential segregation expert and talking about redlining and things like this. So that's going to be great. The findings in this uh, report, though, are obviously important, but I'm wondering how do you leverage them to build the case for even more aggressive interventions? And I'm guessing as a housing advocate, as a housing expert, uh, subsidizing housing isn't the ultimate goal here and, and, and these kinds of services. Ultimately, we need structural, bigger structural change, although I'm guessing you're going to take wins wherever you can get them, <laughs> right? Uh, how do you make that next step? I mean, this is a pilot. I know there's a next step. Maybe you can tell us about where this goes and how we start to use what you're learning here to scale it, to really start to get at the the core causes of housing instability in central Ohio and beyond. Our hope as we work to launch Healthy Beginnings at Home 2.0 is that we do um, demonstrate why we need a better healthcare policy that recognizes that housing should be provided, why we need better housing policies that support pregnant women and women with young children. And so we want to build that evidence base because for some people, they've and policymakers, they need to be convinced that an investment here will uh, make a difference in, in the kind of outcomes that they're driving towards. So that's what we're targeting to do here. Right, right now, we're trying to get the state of Ohio to commit some of the American Rescue Plan Act dollars, ARPA dollars, to mm -hmm. fund the second phase of the study um, and have been in discussions with the governor's office and the state legislature about if they could rally to be behind this work and to build that. Um, and then my, my hope is that in the long term, um, we do make this what unfortunately feels like a lot of incremental progress. But I think for many Americans, they're just um, could rally behind. We want babies to be born healthy and perhaps um, we can, we can um, chip away at this gap uh, through this type of an intervention. Ultimately, we do uh, need housing as a human right. We need uh, rental assistance to be broadly available, both for crisis situations like we've seen in the pandemic and evictions, but also for the long term. So families um, and individuals and seniors um, can live, live stably. And there is uh, a growing gap between the cost of housing and what wages and incomes are. And those rents are escalating in our community. I want to leave with just one additional thought, which is we know that the rates of homelessness um, are highest in the places that have the greatest rates of growing prosperity. So it's the prosperity that you see in San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles that correlates with the high rates of homelessness and in particular unsheltered homelessness. Columbus is a community with growing prosperity, but unfortunately that prosperity is leading to rising rates of homelessness. 
we used to say a rising tide lifts all boats. I don't think that is true anymore. We are seeing in our community um, with greater um, in income inequality that that rising t- tide is actually swamping many of the boats in our community. And I think mm-hmm. Columbus as a caring community should be standing up and saying, you know, we, we want everyone to have a safe, stable place to call home. Right. Well, thank, that's that's wonderful. I'm, gl- I'm glad you added that. That's, that's really well put. Uh, you know, um, I want to thank you for the work you do, for um, taking some time to unpack all of this with us. One of the joys of doing this show is that I get to learn so much from folks like you who are steeped in this kind of work and, and also just sharing with listeners and, and trying to get the word out there um, is, is a, a core mission of what we're up to here too. So um, you're, you have an open invitation to come back and uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Great. It's good to be with you and your listeners. My many thanks to Maureen Stapleton and Barb Poppy for joining us on the show. As always, we've got lots of links and background material in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. You can also learn more about the Healthy Beginnings at Home project there. I'd also like to thank friend of the show, Amy Stevens of the Health Policy Institute of Ohio, one of our favorite organizations in Central Ohio, for alerting me to the Healthy Beginnings at Home project. And thanks as well to Fran Russ, Communication Manager at Celebrate One, for helping to make this episode possible. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of past episodes, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed to Prognosis Ohio, especially since our next episode in some ways builds on today's. We're going to be continuing the conversation about housing and neighborhood development around Central Ohio. Thanks for listening and be well.